Welcome to the Pantsuit Nation podcast. Pantsuit Nation is an online community of 3.8 million people who have come together to resist the current administration through activism, advocacy, and the power of personal narrative. And today I'm joined by a guest host whose voice you have heard um, on our March for Science episode, Jessica Davidson. I am so thrilled to have her here today. Welcome, Jessica. Yay, I'm so excited to be here, if you can't already tell. Um, I'm really <laughs> glad that I had the opportunity a few months ago to be on the podcast. So I'm super grateful for this opportunity to co-host with you today. Absolutely. And I know that we have some exciting current events coming out of Texas from yesterday's election. Tell us about what happened there. Absolutely. Uh, congrats are in order for Lupe Valdez. She is the former Dallas County Sheriff, and she's also... Um, a lesbian who won the Democratic nominee for Texas go- governor. Big deal. I'm super excited. As Big a Texan, deal. I am so proud to see this victory um, because while our legislators in Austin are actively working on anti-LGBTQ legislation, the people of our state saw through that and we came out with a victory. And in addition to her, we have also three um, members of the LGBTQ community that are also nominees for congressional seats. So this has been a great night in Texas, a really good victory. Wow, that's so exciting. And I feel like really speaks to um, just the success of the campaigns where people are really like running as their authentic selves um, against a lot of this negativity that we're seeing from the other side, exactly what you're talking about, like trying to actually enact anti-LGBTQ legislation. So yay, Texas. Really excited also about Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Um, there's just a lot of exciting things. Amy McGrath, who we've given the Golden Pantsu to before, she won her nomination too. So a lot of exciting stuff. And um, we are really, really lucky to be joined today by an amazing guest, um, Sarah Kenzior. She is best known for her reporting on St. Louis and her coverage of the 2016 election and her academic research on authoritarian states. And she's currently an op-ed columnist for The Globe and Mail. And she was named by Foreign Policy as one of the 100 people you should be following on Twitter to make sense of global events. And I uh, second that. Um, her reporting has been featured, I know, right, in many publications, including Politico, Slate, The Atlantic, New York Times, and her book of essays, The View from Flyover Country, is out now. Welcome to the Pantsu Nation podcast, Sarah. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, So we uh, got a chance to receive copies of your book. And um, as I mentioned, it's essays. So I've been jumping around um, and kind of reading from the different sections. And one of the things that stood out immediately to me when I was reading your book um, is that you talk about economic depression and the flyover states in really racially inclusive terms, that you're not, it wasn't a focus uh, on poor white people, um, but you really tie it to, um, in one of your essays, you talk about Dr. King's message that racial justice and economic justice are inextricably linked. But I think we've really seen a shift away from that in people, that kind of inclusiveness um, in people's writing. And I wonder if you could talk to me about that shift and what you think the consequences are. Yeah, it's been very frustrating to see that shift, um, especially since Trump was elected. You know, unlike most writers, I did think that Trump had a good chance of winning. Um, I was very confident he win the primary. I thought he might win the general. And some of that was due to, you know, what everyone is calling economic 
anxiety, but it's the way that people kind of respond to Trump's rhetoric about that anxiety, which was framed in very xenophobic, uh, very racist terms, Um, whereas the anxiety itself, that feeling of despair is widely shared throughout the Midwest. And, you know, I live in a state that voted for Trump in Missouri, but I live in a city that's a predominantly black city in St. Louis. Um, And that's also a poor city. And a lot of that poverty, a lot of that economic suffering and inequality is explicitly a product of racist uh, policies and of segregation and of white flight. And so I don't think that you can look honestly at the history of America and how we got to our situation today economically without taking into account structural racism and those sorts of institutional weaknesses and inequalities that have always plagued us. Absolutely. Um, I, I think it's such a critical question that is so, um, what's the word, obscured by exactly that rhetoric. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just so important for us to be thinking about it. And your writing has really lifted that back up for me. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah it, it has been frustrating to see this whole, everyone thinks all that's out here is the quote unquote white working class, that there's this, you know, stereotype of a Midwesterner as an older conservative uh, white male former manufacturing worker, whereas there's actually, you know, a lot of diversity in every respect. You get the entire economic spectrum, uh, you get progressive people. You also get very conservative people, but you get people who are from all sorts of different backgrounds working on all sorts of uh, different issues, much like the rest of the country. So, yeah, um, I'm glad you appreciate that that the book is uh, much more inclusive than some of these selective narrations. So, Sarah, we know that, like you just mentioned, that Trump voters aren't a monolith. There are people who have varied experiences, but they have that shared similar frustrations. Um, Since we've read these profiles, like every day since the election of people who now are disenchanted with Trump. What do you think they will sit in the midterms? Do you think their frustrations will contribute to this blue wave movement in some kind of significant way? Um, I don't think people who voted are necessarily going to be part of any blue wave. I have heard from people who voted for Trump that regret the vote, um, but these are the people who were never that enthusiastic about him to begin with. You know, like first you have his base who's attracted to him for, you know, uh, all of the, the worst aspects of his personality and his rule, his cruelty, his racism, his xenophobia, his temper. That's what they actually like about him. Then there were people I met um, as I was covering the campaign who were willing to overlook all of that, and that's its own problem. But it wasn't the central appeal. They really thought he was going to bring jobs or an infrastructure program or some kind of stability to their lives, and he's been the opposite. But when I talk to most of those voters, you know, it, it's more that I see a genuine, um, you know, a sense of disillusionment, a distrust of everybody, a distrust of both parties. I think it's possible that some of those voters may stay home uh, unless there's an issue. Mm. You know, often it's abortion. Um, that's very important to them. You know, if, if they want to vote locally for their Republican representative, they may go out and do that. But they have moved uh, away from Trump. I don't think the polls uh, where they say his approval rating is as high as it is. And, you know, that be said, it's still a very low rating. I don't think those are accurate. I think people respond to the polls with a kind of wariness. They feel that if they, you know, disown Trump um, or express disapproval of Trump, that it will be interpreted as approval for the Democrats. And while Mm. these folks may not like Trump, they really hate the Democrats. Um, And so I think, you Mm. know, you may just see kind of 
some of the apathy um, that maybe kept people who might have voted Democrat uh, home, you know, back in 2016, you may see those folks staying home on the other side out of frustration with the Trump administration in 2018. Hmm. That'll be definitely a really interesting demographic to pay attention to um, and something that I think um, I haven't really thought about since I'm so focused on the, like, GOTV on the Democratic side. Um, so... I don't know. One of the great focus things about on, I mean, and, and the voters to focus to on are the ones who didn't vote, um, you know, the ones who didn't have a lot of information about what the consequences right. of voting for Trump would be. That's who to look yeah. out for. This whole trying to placate the Trump base thing, like that's not going to work. And that's not really a great use of time. So, Absolutely. Um, so one of the other things that um, I mentioned in, in the intro is that you are a scholar of authoritarian regimes. And one of the things that you do in your writing and on Twitter is to call attention to um, some of the ways that our current administration is exhibiting the signs of authoritarian rule. Um, and I'm wondering what your advice is to citizens who are following you and seeing that kind of work. How do we take action to be strengthening those institutions that are upholding our democratic values in this moment when they're really being kind of torn asunder? Yeah, I mean, that's a tough question, um, because I think that they were being torn asunder well before Trump got in, and that's in part mm-hmm. how Trump got in. Um, you know, we'd had two wars, we'd had a recession, we had a, a massive um, weakening of institutions and an erosion of social trust. Um, but I don't think that this is something, this is not a top-down effort. This is not deliberate malice from above, whereas now it really is. Um, you know, it's a mm-hmm. kleptocratic administration that's becoming increasingly authoritarian. It's infringing on people's civil liberties that's, you know, trying purposely to, you know, bankrupt and manipulate the economy in order to hoard resources and, you know, intimidate businesses to enhance their own wealth. Like, it's a disaster. Um, But it plays out as a disaster differently, depending where you live. So in terms of, you know, what citizens can do, um, first document and discuss the problems. Don't just sort of assume that, you know, it's going to magically be solved or that Mueller is a savior or that laws just uphold themselves. Um, you know, they don't. Mm-hmm. And so you have to acknowledge that that's there. Uh, the, sec- the second thing I'd really encourage is local activism, um, because at this point, you know, you're more likely to have success in your local elections influencing the decisions of your local officials um, and institutions mm-hmm. than you will on a national level. You know, as much as I would like to influence, um, for example, how Mueller is conducting the Russia investigation and that I'd like him to, you know, really hurry it up, uh, you know, or, or influence <laughs> other terrible policies that the Trump administration is making, I know that I would have much better results um, focusing on, like, St. Louis County, for example, um, you know, where my voice matters more, I have more of an impact, they actually are sort of forced to listen to citizens. Um, so I'd encourage people to do that, um, and also to, you know, reach out to each other. I think the uh, you know, even though we may not be able to affect uh, national policies, individuals, when there are enough of us um, and we're banding together around certain issues uh, and supporting each other and amplifying each other, that really does have an effect. And I think that we've seen that over the last two years um, in these massive protest movements uh, in you know, radically increased voter turnout, uh, you see that citizens are very active and engaged, and they need to stay that way um, if we have a chance of, you know, overturning the damage that's been done. Yeah, among those same lines, in the very beginning of your book, you talk about how people might find it a depressing read. I mean, at that very moment, I wouldn't got a glass of wine because I was like, okay, we're going to work through this. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I, that's absolutely a fair warning. Um, but now I'm really wondering if we can shift to something more hopeful. What movements or recent actions have you seen uh, that you see as progress in the right direction? Um, well, I think citizens have become increasingly aware of their rights, um, unfortunately, as they lose them. And I think for certain demographics of America, this isn't new. You know, it isn't new that you can't trust the government to form competently, that laws often uphold autocratic policies. I mean, we've had a history of that. We've had internment camps, slavery, Jim Crow, genocide of Native Americans, and I can go on and on. Those are all legally enacted autocratic policies. And so this whole idea of, oh, it can't happen here really ignores the fact that it has happened here and it's happened legally. And I think that people are beginning to understand that they're watching some truly horrific policies play out. Um, you know, for example, children um, from undocumented immigrants being stripped away from their mothers, you know, that are, that are just reminiscent um, of fascism and are, you know, extremely alarming on a humanitarian level. And so I think, you know, now that people kind of know that the worst can happen, has happened, is happening. They're banding together more. Um, they're working together more. And I think that that level of engagement and that level of passion um, is, is very good. And I think some of it is flying below the radar of the media, you know, especially when it comes to women uh, organizing and participating in activism. You know, I know I see a lot of that in St. Louis, um, a lot of activist groups that are led by women. Uh, and I'm not mm -hmm. sure people know they really exist. I think they may know they exist um, if our elections in, in November are free and fair uh, in terms of, you know, who shows up at the ballot box and what issues people are getting motivated around um, and what they're supporting. I think that that's all positive. It's just, you know, we can't deny we have a formidable framework um, to oppose as the autocratic practices of the Trump administration become more entrenched. Absolutely. And one of the communities that you belong to, I think, is um, severely under attack, the um, journalist community. We know we just recently had reporters from the AP physically removed from the EPA meeting. So I'm wondering how journalists are talking with each other about what's happening, um, since I think we kind of read a lot of writing out to the non-journalistic public, um, but I'm wondering what conversations you're having with your um, journalist friends and coworkers about what to do and what's going on. Um, I don't have a lot of journalist friends, and honestly, I feel like that's <laughs> from other journalists, because, you know, I'm not kind of just talking to other journalists all day and figuring out, you know, what is the agenda and kind of caught in this um, bubble of rhetoric. You know, I, I, I talk to, I don't want to say like regular people, because journalists are regular people. Um, but, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people from all different walks of life and different professions. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that within, um, you know, people who are working as journalists, there's a lot of differences in opinion. Um, I think that those who are kind of, I don't know, working as, I guess I would call them access journalists, you know, DC-based or New York City-based journalists that prize access to the administration above anything else, uh, including telling the truth, have a different perspective on how to cover this, um, where it's sometimes careerist, it's sometimes financially motivated, but often it's just a, a kind of incomprehension about what access journalism does when you're covering a wannabe dictator, um, in that you're mm. helping aid them. And 
by this, I mean, you know, you can look at, at CNN and other quote-unquote liberal networks uh, that routinely put on people who lie compulsively, people like Kellyanne Conway or Michael Caputo mm-hmm. or others who are direct targets of the Mueller probe. You know, they're being investigated mm-hmm. for things like conspiracy against the United States. They may not, not be the most objective source um, <laughs> to, you know, put on television. <laughs> and then, of course, we've got journalists working for Fox News. And then you have, um, you know, some journalists who are doing a really good job, um, doing good political analysis. Uh, and, you know, it's it's a diverse array of people. You know, I kind of don't have a favorite outlet or anything like that. I look at the individual, um, you know, what they've come up with, whether they're trustworthy over time, and kind of whether they're willing to look at exactly how bad this is and not make excuses and not expect a pivot and not suddenly say that Trump acts presidential, but to prioritize the people that Trump is hurting. Because I think that that's what journalism is about. It's about serving the public. It's about informing the public. And right now we have an administration that is hurting an enormous number of people. And if that's not your priority as a journalist, like, I don't know why you're working in this field. Absolutely. Yes, I can't. Um, This is people, this is why you need to be following Sarah, reading what she's writing. Um, I think you're a critical voice that we have right now, um, which thank you so much for joining us and and giving us, I think, a lot to think about and a lot to continue to um, dig deep on and and fight against, actually, a really great roadmap. Um, Where can people find uh, your work on, um, where can they follow you and, and all of that? Uh, well, as you said, I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, it's Sarah Kenzier, um, K-E-N-D-Z-I-O-R, uh, Sarah and H. And my website is sarahkenzier.com. Um, I update it regularly with articles and interviews. Um, I write for the Globe and Mail, uh, Fast Company, other publications. And, of course, I've got uh, the book out, The View from Flyover Country, which is available everywhere. So uh, check that out. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining Thank us today, so Sarah. Much. It was a pleasure. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, she's really, really amazing. Yeah. I mean, I guess for me, everything that stuck out was how I'm a journalist by training and by trade and all these different conversations she had about the media and her contribution to like the conversation about people not having the seat at the table. Like I all felt that I felt that on a personal level, but to read Mm. her perspective on it was like, wow. I mean, it made me fly through the book really because I was like wow I've had all these experiences but I haven't really had a true conversation it seems with someone else who completely different background all the courts and also had this experience I mean the book is amazing yeah can't can't say enough about reading it it does I'm impressed that you were able to sit down and read it all the way through I had to take a couple breaks (laughs) I took some breaks because you know I bought a highlighter out and I was like I haven't done this since grad school but yeah. the half the book was highlighted I was like okay am I really <laughs> focusing on I things know. but there was it was so good and I had to sit back and have I had a few conversations with people like okay you have to grab this book now so we can talk about everything I've highlighted and all the really good essays that I really love in here so that's amazing it, it was a, a very difficult read in the sense that it was a lot of truth in that and that's hard to digest in one like setting absolutely well um let's switch gears and talk about the call to action jessica why don't you get us started 
It is well known that defunding Planned Parenthood and drastically restricting women's access to safe, legal abortions has been a priority of the Republican Party. Now the president may implement what is known as a domestic gag rule, cutting Title X family planning funds to any health clinic in the U.S. providing abortion services. This is similar to the global gag rule that cuts funding to the international aid organizations providing abortion services, again, to the detriment of women's health. Currently, Title X funds go to helping over 4 million Americans, most of whom are at or below the poverty level, receive vital services such as cancer screenings, pap smears, birth control, and STD testing. And they already, uh, these funds already cannot go to abortion services because of the Hyde Amendment. So cutting off Title X funds altogether would devastate the operations of dozens of health clinics around the country and lead to millions of vulnerable women losing access to their primary health providers. Patients will also have the full scope of medical options kept from them because physicians will not even be permitted to verbally mention abortion services to a woman in their office, which is just outrageous. That's like having cancer and your uh, doctor can't tell you about chemotherapy. Like it's, it's something Absolutely. that you have access to. Um, so we must demand that Congress publicly condemn this, this domestic gag rule, this policy. Um, visit fivecalls.org for your representatives' phone numbers and call scripts. Um, call and make your voice heard and make sure that your Congress people know that women deserve better um, than this domestic gag rule. Oh, so just every single thing is so frustrating with the, just like Sarah was saying, like how many people are being hurt by this administration. Absolutely. Like, it's devastating, you know, and it's like, okay, where does it end? And every time you think, okay, it can't get worse than that. I don't even want to say that anymore, especially with this. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, all right. Well, let's let's switch gears to something that we can be uh, excited about. Um, the golden pantsuit. <laughs> Super excited about this one. Yay. So, um, Many people, I, I don't know what the numbers are, tuned into the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle this past weekend, who are now, of course, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. And one of the standout moments in the wedding was Karen Gibson and the Kingdom Choir singing Stand By Me during this ceremony and Amen and This Little Light of Mine as the couple left the church. And not yes. only did the choir just sound beautiful, but they looked amazing in these like super sharp, coordinating, not too matchy, but like really well uh, coordinated, as I already said, pastel blues <laughs> and purples and pinks. And there were some really fierce pantsuits in there. Um, and their look was the work of a young London designer named Jeanette Young, and she is our golden pantsuit winner this week. You'll also have seen her work if you shopped Beyonce's Ivy Park line from Topshop, which I definitely did. Um, yep. And so golden pantsuit to Jeanette for adding such incredible beauty to the wedding. Um, if you're a fashion person, definitely pay attention. Um, the they did a really good job of like highlighting a lot of young people's talents at the wedding and Jeanette's work to make the choir just look as beautiful as they sounded was an ex incredible example of that. Um, and I just, they, they were so beautiful. So let's hear a, a, sh a little bit of the choir singing stand by me and we will definitely post their beautiful outfits on Instagram. Yeah. And the land is dark 
And the moon is the only light we see. No, I won't be afraid. No, I won't be afraid. Just as long as you stand, stand by me. Awesome. I mean, I was blown away. Blown away. Just, they were incredible. They were beautiful. And um, Jeanette Young is just a really exciting person to follow um, in in this world for the, you know, cutting edge stuff she's doing. I'm so glad that this was a platform that she got to be able to take advantage of. Yeah, I mean, if you were like me, you were sitting at home in like sweatpants, a t-shirt, and the only fascinator you own eating cheese, because that's what fancy <laughs> people do, of course. Uh, <laughs> so to see everybody looking gorgeous, but that choir, I mean, the, the color, the sunlight, like, and just how it hit all of the outfits, coupled mm-hmm. with the beautiful music, amazing, amazing. Absolutely amazing. So, golden pantsuit to Jeanette. You can find her on Instagram at Jeanette Young Stylist. Um, follow her to add a little beauty to your account. So, uh, that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much to our guests, Sarah Kenzior, and to our team at Kane yes. 13. And so many thanks to you, Jessica, for co hosting with me today. It was amazing to have you. Thank you. This was so much fun. Make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, leave us a review. Visit us at pantsuitnation.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at pantsuitnation. You can check out our Medium page, medium.com slash pantsuitnation. And uh, we'll be back next week. And until then, remember, this democracy is your democracy, so stay engaged. And let's uh, let the choir play us out today. Stand by me.